So this afternoon I'd like to reflect a little bit upon the theme of joy. I think very often we can almost imagine that joy is going to be the outcome of hard work and hard effort and getting rid of the difficult. And that if we're fortunate, that we will then arrive at a place of joy. I'd like to suggest something different, that joy is an indispensable attitude in the development of the practice. That joy is an indispensable thread, quality, that actually allows the path to deepen. I would also like to suggest that joy is a cultivation. And in the framework of the Buddha's teaching, he, he basically encourages to, to come out of the thinking that things are accidents. You know, that if we're fortunate, we'll stumble across a moment of joy. Um, that if we're less fortunate, we will bump into a moment of confusion. I mean, the whole, the whole of the Buddhist teaching is actually designed to take the bewilderment out of experience. That we know how things arise. We know the conditions for things arising. We know the conditions for things falling away. That many of the qualities of heart and mind that we truly long for and treasure are not accidents, but they are conscious cultivations and inclinations. You're probably aware of how much um, the teaching actually speaks about joy, although it's easy to forget it that this is a path of happiness leading to the highest happiness, which is peace. Joy is certainly one of the Brahma-viharas, the divine, the ennobling qualities of heart. It is one of the factors of awakening. And it is an inclination that really does ennoble and liberate the heart. And it's always interesting to me how little joy seems to be spoken of in the path. Certainly we speak a lot about suffering, but we also speak quite a bit about metta, we speak quite a bit about compassion, we speak quite a bit about equanimity. But often this joy quality seems to be a little bit neglected, and I think in many people's experience and practice it is also a little bit neglected. It can feel like it comes later or after, after this is, is over. My own sense is that it is so important in this, this path where we're really asked often to find the courage to turn towards many layers of difficulty, struggle, fear, anxiety in ourselves and in the world, and to be able to turn towards that without being broken. Both metta and joy are essential qualities. 
I think that meeting with the difficult, without these qualities and these inclinations in place of metta and compassion, the difficult can at times feel overwhelming. Look at what happens in your day and in your meditation. As you turn towards your own body, your own mind, your own heart, how often it can feel as if we're we're again and again rubbing up against that which feels a little bit broken or that which feels a little bit imperfect or that which feels sorrowful. And without joy, to temper and to balance mindfulness, that meeting inwardly can actually lead towards a greater contractedness and identification where there even seems to be a kind of magnification of the difficult. Now, joy is what gladdens the heart. It brings contentment. It brings spaciousness. It brings ease. It brings receptivity. It is part of our capacity to be able to be touched by all things. It's not described as a state, separate and apart from other states. But joy is one of the ways of the inclinations of heart of being present with sadness, with sorrow, with the difficult, to cultivate the heart's capacity for joy. In the Dhammapada, the Buddha put it, he said, live in joy, in love, even amongst those who hate. Live in joy, in health, even amongst the afflicted. Live in joy, in peace, even amongst the troubled. Look within, be still, free from fear and clinging. Know the sweet joy of the way. Now when he speaks about living in joy amongst those who hate, it may be living in joy amongst the aversions within ourselves. Living in joy amongst the afflicted, is living amongst the afflictions and the imperfections within ourselves. Living in peace amidst the troubled means living in peace within that which is troubled or discontented within ourselves. To learn to be still and to know the sweet joy of the way. Now I want to touch on, on a number of the different ways that joy is spoken about in this teaching and this tradition. Speaks about sensual joy, about pity, about rapture, about the joy of celebration, appreciation, altruistic joy, the joy of contentment, of gratitude, and actually the joy of the awakened heart and mind, the joy of stillness. I think what is clearly recognized in this path is that not only does every moment live in a state of potentiality, but our own minds and our own hearts also live in a state of potentiality. And that this mind, this heart that has the capacity and the potential to experience so much torment, so much struggle, so much confusion, of a course, is exactly the same mind and heart that has the capacity and the potential to know very profound levels of joy, of stillness, of gladness, of spaciousness. 
And in the practice that we do here, it is really an invitation to, to keep stopping, to find the stillness within ourselves, to truly look at what is actually going on, to look at our capacity for contractedness and for identification and struggle, and to see and nurture our capacity for joy. A way of being with all events and experiences. Describing a kind of spaciousness of heart that can indeed pervade all events. And then there is also the invitation in this path to be to look very carefully at what it is that actually suffocates and stifles that capacity for joy and that inclination. Joy has roots, and many of these roots you are very familiar with. Joy rests upon conditions, and many of these conditions you are very familiar with. Certainly, joy begins, or one of its roots, powerful roots, is within metta, boundless friendliness. Our capacity to see and to honor the goodness within ourselves and with others. No matter our capacity to honor the kind of universal longings for safety, for peace, for happiness, no matter how deluded are the ways in which those longings manifest, but to have that sense of befriending. The reason my joy is so closely aligned with metta, and metta is often said to be the foundation of all of the Brahma-Viharas, is that metta provides this, this sense of relatedness, a sense of befriending, rather than abandoning, rather than turning away, rather than free, uh, fearing, And this is a kind of metta also found within the teaching on ethics. Because it's about undoing the pattern of aversion. And we can see how aversion is so clearly one of the factors that suffocates joy. That when aversion is present, of course, our eyes are clouded. All of our sense doors are clouded. All of our sense doors are, in a way, contracted, so the heart really can't be touched, can't be gladdened. So we begin, joy begins with the conscious cultivation of the conditions of befriending, the conscious cultivations of, of integrity in all things, of non-harming, of caring, of, of looking after. In the Dhammapada, the Buddha puts it that it is a disciplined heart that invites true joy. It is, that's an interesting concept, isn't it? The disciplined heart invites true joy. What is the discipline about? The discipline is not about shoulds, it is not about commandments, it's not about force. The discipline is actually how we are learning moment to moment to incline our minds. Whether we are inclining our minds towards the preoccupation with, the obsession with, or the identification with that which is not well, or whether we incline the mind again and again, moment to moment, to actually a fullness 
of meeting the moment as it is. Now, one dimension of joy that is spoken about is sensual joy, which is quite different than sensual craving. And I'm sure you've all heard the dangers in sensual craving. But sensual joy is a different creature. Sensual joy is about our capacity to appreciate, to be gladdened by, to be touched by. It is our capacity to delight in the lovely. I have always found that with meditators in, in the West, I, I think there's, there can be such an anxiety about clinging and craving that the, appreciate, the sensual appreciation gets kind of closed down. You know, there's a feeling that if I go there, I'm bound, bound to sink into craving and in pursuit of sensual pleasure. I think it's not so. When, you, when you're on retreat here, as I'm sure you have noticed, have you noticed how much nature is an ally in your practice? To be able to step outside and really appreciate the touch of the wind on your skin, to, to see the silhouette of the trees in the sky, you know, to actually delight in the bunny hopping across the grass. You know, this is not going to sentence us to a lifetime in samsara. Um, but that sensual appreciation often actually is for many people a, their, their first taste of joy. You know, that, that capacity to be touched without wanting to hold it, without wanting to cling to it, without wanting to make it mine, without needing to make it different or to maintain it. But that simple capacity to stand amidst the lovely and to know its effect upon us. This is actually something to remember. It's uh, too easy to have an attitude in practice, you know, that there's something more noble about suffering. You know, and if I'm really grappling with something, you know, I'm really going to get somewhere. You know, and, and I certainly saw this in, in practicing in early years in Asia, you know, that, uh, you know, basically anyone who smiled was probably on the wrong path. You know, and, and actually, you know, anybody who was absolutely tormented, they were really going deep. You know, it's not, it's not so. It is not so. So we begin to taste that loveliness of our gladdened heart, often within the greatest of simplicity, by opening our eyes, opening our ears, allowing ourselves to be touched. Now, one of the ways that joy is spoken about is, is also in the meditative context. It's spoken about in the form of piti, or sometimes described as rapture or bliss. And this is a kind of joy that's often really quite associated with deep, deeper states of concentration and absorption. Now, again, the Buddha very much cautioned against pursuing these states as ends in themselves because these states, of course, that are produced through conditions will arise and pass like any other state. But it doesn't make them unworthy. I think one of the reasons that we really focus on what we're doing here, long retreats, sustained practice, is because it is possible really to get a glimpse of an inwardly generated joy. 
an inwardly generated happiness, an inwardly generated well-being. Not a, a joy that's not born of getting something, a joy that's not born of getting rid of something, a joy that's not born of being able to control the conditions of our world, but actually it's very much a joy that is born of relinquishment, isn't it? And you really see that in the practice. As you begin to taste that inwardly generated joy, you, you actually get a sense of what it is to have a mind that's a true friend, a mind that, that's free from distortion and fragmentation and distractedness, a mind that's free of projects and agendas, a mind that's really not so gripped by the hindrance factors. And the reason why so, so much emphasis is given to formal practice and inner development is basically concerned with that genuine glimpse of inwardly generated happiness. Because, you know, this changes our relationship to the world of things and people and experience pretty dramatically. I mean, as long as that, that, that real taste of inwardly generated joy and happiness is not present, we are always externalizing the sources of it, aren't we? You know, if I had more of this and less of this and I fix my world and rearrange the furniture of my world, then I'm going to be happy. And then without that genuine confidence in inwardly generated happiness and the sources of true joy being within ourselves that is when we become so much a hostage to the world of conditions and actually move through life like hungry ghosts, always waiting for something to make us happy or something to make us joyful. So having that taste inwardly so changes our relationship to the world of conditions, which we are asked to meet, asked to appreciate, asked to embrace, but no longer so much externalizing the sources of happiness and unhappiness and actually no longer being so prone, prone to craving and aversion identification. There is a quality of joy that is spoken about which is much more within the realm of, of gratefulness, appreciation. Um, being able to stop again and again in our days and in our lives to know the ways in which our very life is actually has been a gift of so many. The gratefulness, the appreciation of being well taken care of, being cared for, the gift that you know the appreciation the gratitude towards the many people in our life sometimes even the difficult people in our life who actually really encourage us to to take steps perhaps that we wouldn't have without them but that sense of of gratitude is something so so very central in the practice martin luther king I love this piece Junior once said. He said, whether we realize it or not, each of us lives eternally in the red. We're everlasting debtors to known and unknown women and men. When we arise in the morning, we go into the bathroom and reach for a sponge, which is provided for us by a Pacific Islander. We reach for soap that's created for us by a European then at the table we drink coffee provided for us by a South American or tea by a Chinese or cocoa by a West African. 
Before we leave the house, we're already beholden to more than half of the world. It is something, that sense of appreciation, the sense of, of gratitude. And of course, we can go through our days, you know, preoccupied with all we've never received and don't have. And joy is certainly never a denial of the very, very real difficulties and often real sense of lack and real lack that has been part of people's lives. And yet, this is a present moment practice. And we recognize that here we are in this moment in the only life we're able to live, the only moment we're able to inhabit. And it is here that we actually really do have choices about where we will make our home. Whether we will make our home in resentment and envy and blame and shame, or whether we actually make our home in our capacity for inner sufficiency, our capacity for stillness, our capacity for metta and appreciation. Appreciation is also something we learn to offer inwardly an inner gratitude. And again, you know, we can be so inclined to be quite judgmental about our practice and our path, our development or lack of development. It's actually quite a heroic thing you're all doing here. There's a lot of other things you could be doing with your time. You know, you could be on the beach somewhere. You know, you could be at the movies and maybe you've had that temptation at times. But here you are, you know, turning up showing up. And there is something to appreciate that underneath the changing contents of our experience and our meditation, there's something deeply important to appreciate about the efforts, sincerity, the dedication that brings us back, even amidst the difficult, to actually show up in this life. We do see that we are always practicing something, consciously or unconsciously, habitually or intentionally. There is not a single moment in the day when we are not practicing something. And here we are, moment to moment, really endeavoring to plant those seeds of freedom. It's a pretty well-recognized reality you know, that the human mind has the primary inclination to focus on the imperfect, to notice what is wrong, to notice what is missing. I mean, from an evolutionary perspective, (coughs) this was fairly important to our survival. We are not in a situation where the tiger sits outside the door, you know, or where someone's about to poach our water hole. And yet still the mind can have that inclination just to really highlight what is wrong rather than actually to really begin to notice what is well. Cultivating appreciation, gratitude, generosity, I think really rests upon opening our hearts and our minds to be able to receive and give. And to know a kind of inner wellness in the midst of the difficult. Some years ago, uh, we had a a student who um, 
suffered a pretty catastrophic kidney failure on a retreat. And uh, it was for many years, you know, just having to live with kidney disease. And, and I ran into her at some point a couple of years later, and they were really, we were at the gym and they were really working out really hard. And I, you know, I said, are you training for a marathon or something? He said, no, actually, my brother's offered me a kidney. I'm getting ready for a transplant. I could just sense this kind of sense of, the kind of altruistic joy. You know, that sense of remarkable generosity. And then they added, you know, my, my, my brother's not even on a spiritual path. That was a questionable conclusion, but actually, we do see how much, how much the well-being of our life. We we are not in those kind of dramatic situations very often, and yet the well-being of our life really rests upon the kindness and the generosity of others. The teaching speaks about this. This kind of altruistic joy, this, our capacity to celebrate the happiness and the well-being of others. It's part of the aspect of dana, isn't it, of generosity. You know, it's so easy, isn't it, to be a bit jealous, to be a bit resentful, to, to kind of, you know, look at others in a kind of evaluating way. They must be doing much better than me and, you know... It's very easy to fall into the mind of withholding. And altruistic joy is is genuinely that stretch to truly celebrate and honor the well-being and the happiness of others. It's kind of what arises when envy and covetousness do not appear. There's a, some of you will be familiar with, with this Sri Lankan translation of mudita, which is about empathic or altruistic joy. It goes, How wonderful you are in your being. I delight that you are here. I take joy in your good fortune. May your happiness continue. When I first heard this translation, I have to confess, I found it a bit sugary. And I thought, no, you know. And then I, I stayed with it a little bit. And I thought, what an amazing thing it would be to go through my day and look at a person and say, how wonderful you are in your being. And I delight that you are here. I thought, what a, what, what a transformation that would be, rather than you know, looking what I might get from somebody or who threatens me or who I want to be with or you know, what they might offer me. Just said, I delight that you are here. These phrases are not about sentimentality, but I think they are what arises when the whole kind of sense of self and other really begins to calm down. Because it's really being aware about how the solidity of our own sense of self is constantly being shaped and formed and reformed in our perception of other and our relationship to other. And how that, that kind of co-dependency between self and other is, it has so often running through it the threads of comparing, judging, evaluating, but also the threads of, of separation and disconnection. 
and about how mudita is actually about allowing that that separation, allowing that that codependency to begin to calm down and to actually have that sense of altruistic joy for another, but also for ourselves. How would it be for you to turn those phrases inwardly? How wonderful I am in my being. I delight that I'm here. I take joy in my good fortune. May my happiness continue. Isn't it a lot easier to, even when it's difficult, wouldn't it be a lot easier to actually almost kind of convey that to another than to convey that inwardly? And yet mudita, that kind of altruistic joy, is not just concerned with the other because it's really concerned with the falling away of self and other. So it is actually about, about this sense of inner appreciation. It's very interesting with, with the exploration of the Brahma-Viharas and, and the kind of wholesome, skillful qualities we cultivate. It's so interesting to see the way in which the voice of selfing is so much louder, so much more insistent in the midst of unskillful and unwholesome states and qualities. And how the voice of selfing and the voice of othering become so much quieter in the midst of the skillful and the wholesome and the liberating. And this is something really to explore in the day. I mean, you notice like if you're gripped by anxiety or, or by aversion, how those very, very states and those very qualities make us very narrative prone. Hmm? And part of the narrative, of course, is the building up of the self-story in the midst of the unhelpful and the unskillful. Do you notice in moments when there's a kind of unhesitating, a kind of naturalness around kindness or compassion or generosity or joy, do you notice how the voice of selfing and othering, just kind of like the volume, gets turned right down? Sometimes absolute non-existence. If, if, if there's an unhesitating moment of meta, you know, and, and, and you, you reach out to open a door for someone who's carrying a full plate, you know, afterwards you don't go away from that moment thinking, oh, I don't know why I was kind. You know, that, what was that all about? You know, where did that kindness come from? Maybe it wasn't really kind. It's almost like complete unto itself. But you notice that if you did exactly the same thing with a mind of aversion, how you walk away from that moment and the narrative is, you know, why didn't that person, you know, take care to get, get themselves where they need to go? You know, people are always asking things of me. You know, the story just builds. And with the story, the selfing. It is why I think so much in this teaching we're not so concerned with unpacking the notion of self so much but actually really looking at what are the conditions of heart and mind that support the self-story, and what are the conditions of heart and mind that make the self-story and the other story so much more transparent. There is this joy of of almost the appreciation, the, the celebration that actually really comes with 
knowing what it means to be present in the present. You know, being present is something much more than a cliché. Knowing what it means to be wholehearted and to appreciate the outcomes of that. I think there is almost an eternal law that as, as our practice deepens, so too does our capacity to be at peace with all things. That as our practice deepens, so too does our capacity to be touched and delighted. We find things begin to fall away. You know, we might find ourselves less impatient, less judgmental, less frustrated, less comparing. And this, of course, is not always a linear process. It has its ups and its downs. (coughs) But there is a reality that things begin to fall away. And that is actually at both a taste of freedom and a taste of joy. We're learning really how to liberate the moment. Now we've all tasted, I think, moments of joy that can be quite fleeting, that seem to come out of nowhere and disappear. But actually, more what we're concerned with in the path is how do we actually cultivate this inclination of the heart Just as metta is an inclination of the heart, just as compassion is an inclination of the heart, how do we cultivate this inclination of the heart? And, you know, perhaps part of it is asking that question of what it is that stifles joy. What is going on inwardly that seems to to leech that capacity for joy from our lives? I think that there are probably many, many factors, but a few of them are perhaps more apparent to us. I mean, one of them is simply the reality of busyness. Simply the reality of busyness. It's like, you know, if I took my sweater off and stuffed it in that bell and then tried to ring the bell, there's no sound. Hmm? For the bell to actually ring... There needs to be a little bit more, more space inwardly. Now, busyness, of course, is, is not really about what we do in our lives. Busyness has more to do with the state of our minds. And you've probably noticed even here on retreat how it's possible to be really busy. You know, I mean, there's so many things to do in so many, so, many, you know, so many walks we haven't taken, you know, so many projects to undertake inwardly. Even our inner path, you know, can be project written, you know. I've got rid of my anger and I need to work on my greed, you know, and after I've got rid of my greed, you know, now I need to work on my sexual craving and after I've got rid of that, you know, then I've got this impatience bit to work. I mean, it's, it's like, it is almost overwhelming. It's so much to do. And there is something here about really being aware of, of how that kind of inner busyness, it, it, it really suffocates the quieter whispers of joy. In Chinese calligraphy, the, the symbol for, for busyness translates as heart-killing. And there, there is something very important about you know, really treasuring stillness, knowing that it's often busyness that actually gives a sense of purpose to me. You know, and if I don't have a sense of purpose, where would I, who would I be? 
But to actually treasure stillness, to be aware of when the mind does begin to move into that momentum of overdoing, overfixing, um, overactivity. And what is it like just to stop? We see how much the shape of our life mostly reflects the shape of our mind and how the shape of our mind really does give birth to the shape of our life. And our life can be filled with obsessions, preoccupations, plans and projects. The symphony that never gets finished. And we can also learn this is not a life sentence. This is a kind of fullness that we're learning to empty. It's a kind of fullness we're learning to calm. When we look carefully at our own minds and hearts, perhaps it becomes more evident to us that it's not life that stifles joy. But I I would actually put it in two more obvious domains or, or factors that stifle joy. I think one is obsession, the obsessive mind, and I think the other is craving. And be aware when we use the word obsession in this teaching, we use a little bit, it's not just about these gripping, tearing obsessions. And the Buddha talked about thinking the same thought more than once was an indicator of the obsessive mind. So the bar is quite high here. Um, But we see the common thread between obsession and craving, and the common thread is agitation. It's agitation. We see the agitation, obsession as we go through around and round the same thought loops over and over again, looking for solutions, looking for answers, looking for ways out, and how how the confusion within that almost fuels the obsessive mind, and how it's simply agitated, and, and we contract. So obsession is almost like kind of like this inner turning into contractedness and agitation, Whereas craving is almost like this outer turning into contractedness and agitation. Because craving is also an an obsession with the object of our desire. Whether the object of our craving is a meditation experience or the second plate of lunch or a different room, it doesn't actually matter. Eh? It's an obsession with the object of our craving. And it is equally agitated. Now, you could really look in the day in the midst of any moment of obsession or in the midst of any moment of craving, is there the presence of joy or is this a joy stifler? Hmm? So joy in that sense cannot be just a state. It has to be an understanding of actually what gets in the way. Is also, of course, seeing that agitation and craving are also not life sentences. Um, obsession is not a life sentence. Much of what we're doing in the practice here is learning to calm the agitations, to calm the agitations of the patterns. Whether the agitation is an aversion, whether the agitation is craving, whether the agitation is anxiety or obsession, we're learning to calm the agitations of the patterns. 
as an insight practice, I think the most significant aspect of joy is to do with its capacity to question the world that is built upon aversion and craving. To question the, the contractedness and the realities that are often born of our obsessions and our preoccupations. And to learn they can be relinquished. That we can learn to stop amidst the surges of craving. That we can learn to begin to pause early on in the obsession process and begin to ask you know, both what in this moment is lacking and where is the kindness and the joy in this moment. It's a kind of reorientation of consciousness. And perhaps we also do really begin to discover that joy is not necessarily that far away from us. Even in the most difficult moments, it's not necessarily that far away from us. And it's almost about learning to cultivate those conditions that brings joy into the present. The capacity to stop. The capacity to open our eyes and our ears. The capacity to recall appreciation and gratitude. The capacity to delight in the lovely. But of course, so much of this really does rest upon our genuine willingness to stop and to be still in the midst of that world that can seem so familiar and is so habitual. Where is the turning point? Where is the turning point? Where, where does that doorway begin to open into a, a genuine moment of, of knowing where we are and knowing that with a heart and a mind that's truly receptive, truly able to appreciate, to celebrate, to be touched, to know the, the contentment of that moment. Okay, thank you very much your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.